0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Good evening, everyone. Well, I hope you're well, and I hope you're strapped in and ready to go because we have a lot of ground to cover tonight. So I hope you're ready for it, and uh, please get your finger somewhere in there, maybe beginning around Isaiah, as we look towards the end of our Old Testament, as we finish out These last number of books in our Bible Fresh in the Old Testament this evening. The books towards the end of the Old Testament tend to merge into one great jumble of Jonah's and Joel's and Obadiah's and Habakkuk's. We struggle to spell them, say them, let alone read them. And yet the books of the prophets account for a quarter of the whole Bible. There are more prophetic books than New Testament letters or Old Testament history books. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27 in the New Testament, as Jesus talks with the men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, beginning with the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the Scriptures concerning himself. And as they reflected on that much later on that same Easter Sunday, it's only after an Old Testament Bible study in the prophets that they say to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Jesus pointed to Jesus in the prophets and left those early Christians with such a warmth in their hearts on that resurrection Sunday evening that their minds had been enlightened. It was as Philip was instructed to head south out of Samaria in Acts 8, taking the desert road that he encountered the Ethiopian Chancellor of the Exchequer on his way home. There he was in his chauffeur-driven government chariot, reading from the prophet Isaiah about the silent lamb, his humiliation before his accusers, and the taking of an innocent life. Tell me, he asks Philip, who's the prophet talking about? Acts chapter 8, 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip leads the man to Jesus from the prophets. For this book echoes Christ on every page. But do we see him there? Are we prepared to open Zephaniah or Zechariah and work really hard in these books, asking God's Spirit to show us Christ right there. You know, I really feel that as a Christian community in Northern Ireland, we are missing some of these great, heartwarming, Jesus-viewing moments because we neglect the Old Testament prophets. If you want your heart warmed, you need to know all of the Bible. But let's begin by asking some big questions of the prophets tonight. First one's a very straightforward one. Who are the prophets? Who are the prophets? Well, the prophets are men and women called by God for a particular task. Jewish tradition lists 53 prophets, including those like Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, Moses, Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha. But of course, not all of them have an Old Testament book named after them many of those that i've just mentioned are described as the former prophets whose lives are outlined in the historical books of the bible books like first and second samuel first and second kings and so on but our focus tonight is on what many have called over the years the latter prophets those whose words are actually recorded in scripture there were in fact hundreds of Old Testament prophets that we never even read about. In fact, if you were to read First Samuel or First and Second Kings, you read that there are training schools for the prophets, a little bit like theological colleges of their day. But towards the back end of the New Old Testament, we have come to classify the prophetic books in one of two ways, and it's not always very helpful. There are the major or the minor prophets which does not mean that some are more important than others, but rather due to their length for like Isaiah, Ezekiel, well, they're major pieces of work with many, many chapters, whilst Amos and the rest are minor by comparison. Yet God has chosen just 16 prophets to have their words recorded in this section of the Bible. You see, Men like Elijah and Elisha, who we often immediately go to when we think of prophets, we know a lot about what they did, but we actually don't know very much about what they said. The personal history of the likes of Elijah takes us to him, you know, confronting Ahab and his palace, and then up there in Mount Carmel against the great prophets of Baal. But Elijah actually says very little. But as for the lives of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we learn very little about who they are, or what they do, because God wants us to focus on His Word, not His workers. Some of them we know nothing about apart from their name. Others, like Amos, describes himself as a shepherd from Tekoa, a man of the land. He was a farmer who introduced himself in Amos 7, verse 14, as neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet who also took care of sycamore fig trees. And as to their call from God to speak in his behalf, well, Isaiah, well, remember, he was shaken by the earthquake in the temple in Isaiah 6. That's why we began that right, with those lovely words of holy, holy, holy. That's what he saw and heard the cherubim singing in heaven. But as a result of him recognizing his own sin before a holy God, then that coal touches his lips, lifts him up, and then he says, here am I, send me. But for someone like Jeremiah, it was completely different. Jeremiah was called by God before he was even born. A little bit like John the Baptist. God's spirit was at work in Jeremiah's life even before he was born in the confines of his mother's womb. So you see, the focus is on the Word of God, not the workers of God. That's who the prophets are. And I think that's so important in this day of celebrity Christian culture, where we exalt big-name speakers and the big-name writers. I think God despairs of that somewhat. He's more concerned with the word that's brought than the worker involved. God chooses and God uses. A prophet speaks for God to the people, whoever that might be. Here's the second question. Where do we find these prophets? Well, we need to remember that by this stage of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel had split in two. Israel to the north with the capital city of Samaria, Judah to the south with the prized capital city, the famous city of Jerusalem. Knowing where and to whom they speak is absolutely vital for us to gain any kind of meaningful understanding of the words and context. That is why I would thoroughly recommend that every Christian home has at at least one big Bible overview guide or a background commentary to the Old and New Testaments. I'd advise every Christian home to have at least one of those. And if you're looking for recommendations, speak to David or myself, and we can point you in the right direction, or we can even order something in for you that might be of help to you, especially when it comes to some of these Old Testament books that seem so distant and so remote and hard to figure out. For once you grasp the where, when, and why of a particular book, you're halfway to knowing how it might actually be applied to our lives today. Sally, so many people pick a random verse from Isaiah or Jeremiah or somewhere else, but they don't pick it in context, and they make up their own meaning around it. And that is disastrous for any Christian, because you're applying to yourself something that was never meant to mean in the first place. So it's important to know who and how and why these words were given. For most of us, these Old Testament prophets find themselves in one of three places. Let me rattle through them. First of all, the prophets were either in the kingdoms of Israel or Judah, warning about the attack of a foreign army that was about to come. In other words, they were about to be defeated. Secondly, they might have been found in the nations to which they had been exiled or enslaved. So some of the prophets write either from Assyria or Babylon or Persia, the places to which they were sent. Or thirdly, the prophets write once some of them have returned to the wreckage in Israel or Judah as they tried to rebuild what was broken. And so the prophets find themselves always facing very similar kinds of trials to their own friends or families or fellow Jews. So they speak into a time and a place that is not abstract from the people who are listening. There's always a proper context. Thirdly, when did the prophets write? Well, it was over a period of 300 years of turmoil in the ancient Near East, between 760 and 460 BC. I always have to get my head around that. The numbers that get you know, smaller mean that they're getting closer to the arrival of Christ. But you've got to get your heads around that. So it's 300 years between the 8th century and the 5th century BC. The prophets, and this is where we need to get our heads around it, the prophets Amos, Jonah, Hosea, Micah, Joel, and Isaiah are written before Israel's fall to the Assyrian army in 722 BC. That's known as pre-exile, or sometimes writers write pre-exilic. But then you've got Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Daniel, Obadiah. They write of the woes of God's people before, during, and from Judah's exile, the southern kingdom's exile, to Babylon in 586. Probably the most famous of those, of course, is Daniel. He ends up as a young man, a 17-year-old, in the foreign courts of the king, whereas Haggai... Zechariah and Malachi, towards the end of the Old Testament, well, they are the prophets who returned to Jerusalem as the nations sought to restore and rebuild what had been destroyed. There are other Old Testament books that help us get an insight into what this looked like. 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, as Israel and Judah are confronted by these invading armies, and they've lost all the glory that they once had under King David and King Solomon. And then you get a great inside track into life in the royal courts of Babylon and Persia. Some of the children at home watching us tonight will remember last year we did Esther. I mean, all those characters acted out with the little masks last year. Esther, Daniel, and Nehemiah give us an idea of what it was like for some of these, these God's people living in a, in a foreign land. But this wasn't just an unsettling time for the Jewish nation It's interesting, historians who aren't Christians who write about this period of time describe this time, and I love this, as, wait for it, an unprecedented political, military, economic, and social upheaval with huge shifts in population across the empires of the day. I love the fact that there was another time in history where the writer said it was unprecedented. So if we think we're the only unprecedented generation in history, we're not. It's an unprecedented time for us at this moment, but times of turmoil in the world are never unprecedented. But the virus between the 8th and the 5th century BC was not an invisible threat, but a very visible threat of invading armies and not knowing, I was thinking about this, the people in Israel and Judah did not know A, if they would survive the attack. B, if they would survive the hundreds of miles trek to a new place as slaves. C, if you would ever see your home or family again. And D, if all this suffering meant that God had given up on his people. Psalm 137, written in that era, captures it very well. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Some of you are singing already at home, aren't you, Boney M? There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing of the songs of Zion while in a foreign land? How can God's people sing God's praise when they're in such peril? It's as if they're saying, listen, we might as well hang up our harps, stop listening to our praise music, Don't bother listening to the prophets or the preachers anymore. We're so far from home. We're so far from God. Let's just jack the whole thing in. Let's forget this faith stuff. And God, well, he's the God of the ancient history books. Maybe there's something in that for you tonight. You just don't feel at home like singing anymore. Your songs of joy have been replaced by tears of why. Why, Lord? In this endless cycle of what seems like hopelessness, the upheaval of living at this stage in history just grates up against us. And like this Old Testament era, we're constantly wondering what's next? Historically, we are far, far removed from the collapse of Israel and Judah, but we are certainly looking out into a world where the landscape has changed dramatically and looks very different from before. It's into these times that the prophets speak. But here's the fourth thing. How did they prophesy? How did they prophesy? Well, the Hebrew word for prophet is a word that's spelt N-A-B-I. But it's pronounced, the B's are V's, Navi, meaning someone who speaks before. That's what the Hebrew word means, someone who speaks before. Now, but it means that you're thinking, but are you speaking before an audience or before someone else, or are you speaking before a future event happens? Well, the answer is yes. It's both. Prophets are called to stand before an audience of God's people, but prophets are also called to stand before God's people and tell them what is to come before it happens. In other words, they were preachers and predictors. Okay, now we really need to get this. And I can't see too many whites of eyes apart from the folks who are in here tonight with the praise group. Or if you need another cup of coffee, maybe you need to hit pause now and go and get it to get the caffeine fixed to get you through this next little bit. But we need to get our minds around this because Old Testament prophets were speaking about their day, the people right in front of them, but they were also speaking about tomorrow and the next day and the generation to come, and the generation we're living in now. They brought a double message that spoke of what God wanted them to hear right here, right now, but also what he wanted them to hear about the future. And every prophet, like the preachers of today, had their own different styles. Some of the prophets' messages were carried out in what we call lawsuit, or courtroom style, with Israel and Judah as the accused. If you want to check it out later and spend a little bit more time in this, Isaiah chapter 3, verses 13 to 26 is a great example of this, where you've got the Lord God as the judge. God's people are standing guilty in the dock with all their offenses listed before the jury, and each witness is brought before the court, and each one finds God's people guilty of breaking his covenant. Our other prophets express their message in a series of woes. Micah chapter 2 is an example of this and a woe is just, well you can imagine a harrowing cry that goes up to heaven like the morning at a wake. It's the death of Israel, the separation from God so, so painful. While certain prophets used drama and acted out in eye-catching ways what was about to take place. If you want to have a smile as well tonight. Read Ezekiel chapter 4 and 5, where Ezekiel is called upon to make a model of the city out of clay and using an iron pan to demonstrate the attack upon Israel in miniature. But then he was used to use cow dung as fuel for cooking the fire to express the utter distaste in God's mouth over the people's sin. All followed by something I can really resonate with, As I'm never allowed to trim my beard in the house, I always nip outside to do it. But for Ezekiel, the imaginative cutting of his beard, he then had to wet and burn it and slice it with a sword and then throw it to the wind. All as an illustration of God's cutting people off, his burning fire of judgment, and then being thrown like stubble into the breeze, just going this way and that way. All a picture of what was about to happen to the people. Drama has a part to play in speaking to God's people. And bear a thought, literally bear a thought for poor Isaiah in chapter 20 when he was told to walk around naked for several months to demonstrate that God had stripped the people of everything that was covering them. And finally, poetry. Many of these Old Testament prophecies are written in what's called doggerel. Today we might almost say like a limerick style, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And we can't see that so well, and we don't hear it because we don't have the original Hebrew here for us to rhyme it off so quickly. But in our English Bibles, it is set out nicely, especially in the NIV or the ESV. You have books like Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk that are set out, and it's poetry. Look at the pages, the way they're set out in these little clusters of paragraphs. Those kind of poetry that gives you nightmares from your school days that maybe you had to recite for a school play or something. Many of these writings were recorded in a style that could easily be remembered and repeated, that even a child could remember. Because, you see, they didn't have books. They they only had maybe one scroll per, per 100 or 200 people. So it was costly to write it down, so you had to remember what God said, and the way to remember was by constantly repeating it. We don't see so much of that today as a learning method because everything we have is to hand, isn't it? Literally to hand on our phones. We can read news, watch sport, catch weather forecasts, even share in worship. Maybe some of you are doing that tonight. Checking information, booking the holiday, ordering food, setting a reminder... The words of the prophets were to be spiritual reminders that bleeped as it were, but bleeped in song and rhyme. We use it in small matters today, don't we? Oh, how many days are there in June? 30 days have September, April, June. Oh, 30. I'm sorted. I before ye accept after see. Yeah, that's how you spell that. We we, we remember those little things, but they all help us on our way. And it's the same with these books that are written in poetry. Poetry learnt is poetry that sticks. When you hear the words enough, you have a generation who remembers what's said. But none of the prophets spoke from their own insights. They were all instructed by God as to what, when, and how to convey it. That's why the phrase, this is what the Lord says, or thus says the Lord, matters so much in these books. Even when it was most unpalatable for the hearers. Take, for example, Jeremiah 27 and 28. Consider Jeremiah's difficult task. He is to relay to the people of Judah that it's necessary for them to submit to the armies of Babylon if they wished to please God. His hearers counted this as nothing less than treason, but Jeremiah knew that it would ease their future pain if they they surrendered, as it were, right now. They had to get their heads around that this is what the Lord Say it. Jeremiah didn't come up with it. So, when preachers called by God have their calling confirmed by Christ's church and his spirit, and when preachers today declare God's truths, no matter how uncomfortable, how un PC, how whatever the opposite of woke is these days, and disarming and cutting and challenging it might be, we are called to listen. Preaching today is prophetic. And that it declares before other people what God has said in His book to His people in that time. Folks, I don't always feel happy at saying what needs to be said, but so help me God, if I don't, if God has confronted me with a truth that needs declared or a sin that needs confronted, it is not my prerogative. To change it, to disbelieve the words of a preacher or a prophet who is committed to the Word, is to disbelieve God. To use a line from my friend Vodi Bockham, who sadly is quite unwell at the moment and seeking to get back to America from Africa, where he's been ministering in college there, he said classically a number of years ago, Preachers don't write the mail. They just deliver it. And it's the same with the prophets. Fifthly, why did they prophesy? Time and again, the prophets are sent by God to cry out against what was happening in their own times. You know, idolatry, greed, injustice, oppression of the poor by the rich, corruption in business and government, growing immorality and sexual indulgence. The prophet stressed that God would punish sin, but this was not a new idea. Do you remember way back at the end in Deuteronomy when we were thinking about those books at the end of the law? Deuteronomy 28, God's blessings and curses are laid before the people before they entered into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Obey God and live. A faithful life will result in a fruitful life. Reject God and there will be defeat and fear and destruction and a life lived under the shadow of the what might have been. In a court scene very similar to the one I've already outlined tonight in the Prophets, we read in Deuteronomy 30, at the formal establishment of the loving relationship between Israel and her Lord, in verses 19 and 20, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice, and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There it was, blessing or cursing, before they entered the promised land. And statistically speaking, a majority of what the prophets announce across these 400 years they're speaking about is cursing. Because the major defeats of Israel and Judah come after years of pleading and warning. These Israelites were unique in that they were God's people who had received God's word and God's peculiar blessing, but they constantly choose to ignore God in the land God had given them. It just sounds moronic, doesn't it? Idiotic. Imagine ignoring God in the land he'd given them. Imagine you're living in a rented property, And there's an issue with that property and the person you go to is the landlord and he advises you how to help and what to do and how to handle it if it's a creaky back door or you need to pull the handle this way and pull it this way. If you don't listen to them, you're mad. The problem will keep reoccurring. But because it's his property, he knows it best. He knows how to handle it best. As we would have said growing up in Belfast, these old Israelites... We're cruising for a bruising. For God's warnings were unmissable. Defeat at the hands of their enemies, destruction of all they held dear, despair at the loss of their freedom was only to be expected when God's people refused to go God's way. Isn't that where we finished in the wisdom books last week? In that sense, the message from the prophets was entirely unoriginal. It is what I would like to call another BBC Two. It's just a repeat. The prophets are on repeat, but in all their different styles. Under God's command, the prophets repackaged the truth in drama, in poetry, in preaching, in court cases, what God's people have known forever. This day of reckoning, whether it be through Assyrian kings, the Babylonian army, drought or despair or destruction, or the time that was known as the Day of the Lord a time when God would meet his people in judgment. The only surprise to us should be this, that God had been so patient for so long. They had abused every right they had before God for up to nearly a thousand years by this stage. And yet he was gracious in giving them time and space to prosper. But in their plenty, they did not repent. Friends, we've got to read this with a quiet despair, knowing our own hearts, and how often God has spoken directly to us about particular sin or attitudes in our lives, and still, even as God's people, we have not relented or repented. And so God sends them back to the very places where Abraham had been taken from, You ever thought about that? Abraham was plucked from Ur of the Chaldeans. No one knew this man very well. He was just plucked from obscurity. He was a moon worshiper, but God chose him, and God blessed him and promised him a home and a future. But you know what? He was on a journey to the promised land. Because of their disobedience, Israel and Judah were now on a journey from the promised land. They were heading back to where Abraham was from. But when we move into the era of the exile, with the kingdoms of Israel and Judah already displaced to Assyria and Babylon, these prophets begin to speak more of blessing than cursing, more about joy than pain, because the time of punishment was now complete. God continues to show, and what a God we have, that in his anger there's always mercy. So as we finish tonight, our last question is this. So what is all this for? What is all this about? Well, let's take Isaiah as a typical message of the prophets. For Isaiah combines utter doom with jaw-dropping hope. Take, for example, if you've got your fingers, stick it into Isaiah 6, which displays Israel as a tree that's about to be felled. The axe is at its root, and the whole thing is about to come down. And the prophet tells the people, judgment is coming, but there's no escape. You're in for the chop." Israel's only hope is on the other side of judgment. Have a look with me at Isaiah 6, verse 13. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump. You hear that? The people are the tree. The superpower army of Babylon is the tree cutter. But who is the holy seed that brings new life once the tree is chopped down? Why, we're back to the same word that David introduced to us in weeks one to three of Bible Fresh. For seed, or offspring, describes the Messiah as far back as Genesis 3, 15. The seed of the woman will crush Satan's head. Someone will come and overturn the curse on this world. Again, Genesis 12, verse 7, there's a seed that's been promised to Abraham. 2 Samuel 7, a royal seed has been promised to David. And then, it's the same seed described in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 3. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The end is near for Israel as they are judged for their sins But their hope is not in who they were related to, their history or their rituals or their armies or their identity. They are left hoping for someone yet to come. They're hoping for a seed to become a branch, to become a tree, who's the Messiah. Someone who loves the poor, who reaches out to the lowly, who raises the humble, who worships God from the heart, who loves others as he should, is a true light to the world, just as Israel was meant to be. But the end of the Old Testament reflects the fact that they were still aching, that were doomed in the day of judgment, the final day of the Lord, without God sending a seed. And so, after 70 years of captivity, the Persian king Cyrus Allows a handful of Jews, as it were, to return to Jerusalem. It was a physical resettlement, but it wasn't a proper homecoming. They were caught between two, really, and things weren't the same. Because you can have the right postcode, but it doesn't mean you're at home with God. You can be in and around church or God's people or Jerusalem, even. You can even claim a conversion or a connection, but it doesn't mean a thing. Without the New Testament, the Old Testament would be deeply frustrating and enormously dissatisfying. You see, having begun with the cosmic themes of creation at the start of Genesis, and the enormous hope as man walks with God in Genesis, we end in Malachi with a few people, bedraggled people, walking the broken pavements of Jerusalem. They have just been chewed up and spat out by every major superpower in the world, and that's before the Romans have even arrived. But now they huddle in the shattered remains of the temple that's lost all of its former glory. You see, everything, all of this Old Testament points beyond itself, beyond the law, Beyond the temple, the sacrifices, the priests, the lamb—these were all signs of a deeper spirituality. If we read the Old Testament without the Christ that is to come, we're just reading a tragedy, a tragic play, and a really cruel one at that. These 39 books merely set the scene. Now, if we, identi- if we identify with Israel, we too can easily feel scattered rootless and a bit detached and all the more so in 2020-21 and we need Christ to enter that estrangement if we feel far from God tonight are broken and anxious and aching with a deep longing for more we kind of feel we're we're part of things but we're not, We, we kind of praise God but we still have this heaviness of heart we are ready to see the promised King drawing near and making his home among us if we have read the Old Testament the way it should be read when we turn to the New Testament, it feels like we're coming home and there's a welcome awaiting us. Over these last few months, a song called Jerusalemma, produced by South African DJ Master KG, has trended like wildfire on social media. Africans from Algola danced it to a video which is now known as the Jerusalemma dance and has something like 3 million watches on TikTok and YouTube. I've even seen recently that the Swedish police force and the Guardi and even local schools and teachers have been trying to recreate it. Don't worry, I'm not going to get the praise team up to do it for you tonight. But Jerusalem adapts a much older song that can still be found in the Hossa, pronounce it right, Methodist Church hymn book. I say Hossa with the click because they're from South Africa and the Hossa people speak with clicks. I know this because one of my lecturers at college in Scotland had been a missionary amongst the Hossa people and his name was Billy Graham. Yeah, great name, eh, as a lecturer at a college. But poor old Billy, the boys gave Billy so much stick because he talked about the Hossa people so much that we used to call him Billy Graham. But anyway, back to the Hossa people and their Methodist church hymn book. The original hymn reflects on the promise of a new Jerusalem. That's where this Jerusalem creas stems from. It's from an original hymn. And there are obvious similarities between Master KG's adaption that so many people are dancing to and the original hymn for the first line of Jerusalem, Jerusalem Ekayalame, invokes the message of the entire hymn and reminds those who are familiar with it. Jerusalem Ekayalame means Jerusalem, my home. Keep me. Uhambainami, walk with me. Zuganshini Liana. don't leave me here. yami yame akoyana, my place is not here. Mbusu wami ukwana alana, my kingdom is not here. The hymn describes a wondrous place of rest, salvation, a place of no pain, of sin, a place that actually feels like home. No more tears. The new Jerusalem, friends, is going to be better than the Garden of Eden. It's going to be better than Jerusalem as it stands at the minute, better than Israel itself, for it is the permanent promised land where our present wandering will end. The whole congregation of believers through all of the ages will be present. Together, these descriptions highlight the sheer beauty and longing of the entire ages of this world. For the world as we know it, thank God, is not the end. Imagine if this was it. Our kingdom is not here. We await a better world. The exiles long for a better place. They wanted to be back in Jerusalem, away from Babylon and Persia, but when they got back to Jerusalem, well, actually, things were broken, desolate, and then came the Romans. But when they returned, things were not the same. But then... Came Jesus, who steps up in a despised backwater town around Galilee, fulfilling what was spoken in Isaiah 9, there in the area of Zebulun Naphtali, by the way of the sea, to a people walking in darkness. A great light has dawned. People living in a land of darkness, and Jesus' ministry has dawned. A son was given. The seed had arrived, an offspring, the mighty God among us, the one who was to be the everlasting Father with open arms, someone who can counsel us and carry us, whose shoulders are broad enough not just for government, but for all of us, the one who is the Prince of Peace. The prophetic books bring the same message to us today. God still condemns us and will punish us for putting our trust in any modern idols. He promises to judge those who disobey him, but brings consolation to those who return to him with open hearts. These prophetic books help us to rediscover the values that God calls his people in every age to live by and are a constant reminder that God can use armies and plagues and foreign powers an illness, an accident, and destruction, and fed-upness. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. To bring us to that place where we're only homesick for Him. Maybe, just maybe, God has given us this past year to remind us this world is not our home. There's something better because there's someone better. This world is fleeting, but so too are its pains. And like the time of the prophets, we live in frustration, but unlike the time of the prophets, our light has dawned. You see, they all looked forward with hope of Jesus. And now we are in the position of looking back with joy to Jesus. But as His people, we look forward to Jesus' return. Isaiah 53. Verse 5 reminds us. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so, if you were to stick your finger in the last chapter of Malachi and flick over two pages, you will see that the prophets, quite literally, paved the way for the gospel Sunday night resurrection night walking with Jesus as you have done with me tonight were not our hearts burning within us while he taught with us on the road and opened the scriptures By faith, the prophets saw a day when the long-for Messiah would appear, the one who would break the powers of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave. By faith, we see the hand of God.